Father God, we do thank you for your amazing grace to us. Uh, We always celebrate your grace as believers. Uh, It is our only hope, Um, grace, your grace in Christ. And today as we read this passage written by the Apostle Paul a couple of thousand years ago, we thank you that we know it still speaks. You speak to us through your word and uh, we pray that um, we would know more of the riches of your grace to us in Christ today. We pray that we would... um, your grace would sink deep into our lives and really change us, transform us, uh, so that you truly are glorified in our lives. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Jake. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Well, friends, it's great to see you all here this morning. As Steve mentioned, we're going through this really fascinating series, but important series, looking at the Reformation of 500 years ago, and not just because we're just interested in history, but because the gospel that was recovered then is just as incredible and necessary today for us. Uh, so we, yeah, it's really good for us to hear and soak ourselves in these truths again. But I want you to uh, invite you to come back with me uh, over to Germany. We went to Germany last week. Uh, we're going to go back there again this week and get in your time machine plane and go back 500 years uh, to the year. Last week we heard the story of Martin Luther. Uh, so Luther was a monk in the Catholic Church uh, he, uh, we heard last week how he sparked what became known as the Reformation. Okay, so if you want to sort of go more into the events surrounding that, you can uh, follow up on last week's message. Um, this, this rediscovery of the core realities of the Christian faith, of what it means to be a Christian, um, the good news that led the Reformers to their kind of slow and, you know, in a way, sad conclusion that the church of their day wasn't in any sense a real church in, in a, a Christian church and they had to reform the church. That was the kind of uh, motivation for the Reformation. It was all driven, we saw last week, this was all driven by a rediscovery of the Bible, a re-kind of discovery of the, of the Bible. For Luther, knowing the Bible was God's word meant it had the ultimate authority. It had the ultimate authority, not tradition or experience, not the Pope or any other authority, the ultimate authority was from the Bible. And Luther's conflict with guys, we last week we heard about Johann Tetzel, um, his conflict with guys like that uh, had been building up, it had actually been building up for years. Um, Luther was brilliant, but he was incredibly troubled. He was a really troubled 
kind of guy. Uh, he was deeply fearful that he wasn't good enough. He was deeply fearful. And when he became a monk, he was com- consumed with this kind of passion, this desire to please God, that he had to please God. He, apparently, he would spend five hours a day in the confessional. So the confessional is when you go in and you kind of recount all your sins. And Luther was just obsessive about this. He'd just go in and spend so much time re- going over everything he could possibly think of that he'd done wrong, even the things that he, he didn't know he'd done wrong, but he sort of suspected he might have done wrong. And it drove his superiors nuts. Like he drove the people who were around him, they just kind of didn't know what to do with this guy. Um, he, he said, uh, he said he, at one point reflecting on this period, he said, I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that, uh, that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. If ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. Uh, so the church, the institution around him, the people around him, they didn't know what to make of this guy. They didn't know what to do with him. He was brilliant. He was intense. Uh, so one, one of his superiors came up with this good idea. He said they kind of thought, let's get him to bury his nose in books and become an academic, and then maybe that'll kind of calm him down a bit. So he was made the professor of biblical studies at a university in Wittenberg, which is... Uh, And he starts lecturing on four books of the Bible. He starts going through these four books, Psalms, Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. Now, if you know anything about those books, that's kind of a bit of a dangerous thing to do, (laughs) to start lecturing on those books. They're dangerous books to read. And we saw last week how this conviction that Scripture alone was the ultimate authority for God's people, it drove the Reformation on. Uh, But... Kind of flowing out of that, it was what the reformers like Luther and other people like him at the time, it was what they found in the scriptures uh, that really set them on fire and gave them joy and confidence and courage to do what they did. That's what they found in them. Uh, Luther wrote about his own encounter with the Bible when he, during this period. It should come up on the screen. He said, I was seized with the conviction that I must understand Paul's letter to the Romans. But to that moment, one phrase in chapter 1 stood in my way. I hated the idea, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. So this idea of God's righteousness, it kind of stood over Luther in all his anxiety to be accepted, no matter how hard he tried, no matter how much he confessed his sin, no matter how many good works he did, none of it could stack up against the awesome righteousness of God. And it led him to despair. But he goes on and describes this moment that for Luther was like a lightning bolt and everything changed. Again, up on the screen. Then I grasped that the, that the uh, justice of God is that righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Com- they had this habit of writing complex sentences. I'll read that again. Uh, this is really important, this discovery Luther made. Then I grasped that this idea of the righteousness of God, the justice of God, is that righteousness not by which he condemned his people, but by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to re- be reborn and to have gone through, op- uh, through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning 
And whereas before the justice of God filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. The passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. So Luther went to the Bible, right? Luther went to the Bible, and what he found there was so radical and so shocking that it changed everything for him. Uh, Luther despaired at his sin. His heart that he described as constantly turning in on itself, our kind of capacity to always be turning in, looking at ourselves, he despaired of that. And the Bible, what he found in the Bible didn't disagree with him. It didn't disagree. He didn't find, when he looked in the Bible, a kind of message that said, come on, fella, pick yourself up. Just try a little bit harder. Believe in yourself. He found something much more radical than that. He's, uh, he found God's grace, God's incredible, overwhelming grace, his free gift to people, not just who don't deserve it, but who deserve the opposite. Uh, his free, undeserved gift to sinners. Well, um, just like last week, we looked at a few alternatives to this idea of Scripture alone. There are some, some alternatives to this idea of grace alone that was driving Luther. Uh, uh, and again, they should come up on the screen. Uh, the first one, and uh, this one is really the biggest contrast, this idea of you get saved, you kind of you get there by your works alone. Um, this is where Christianity is totally different to all other systems of belief, all other religions. There's a story told about C.S. Lewis, if you know who he is, famous British author, wrote the Narnia series, but a brilliant intellect uh, and academic. He, he was, there was this conference going on about comparing religions around the world, and the story's told of all these academics having this powwow about what makes Christianity different from the other religions. And so it's told, C.S. Lewis walks into the room and uh, someone asks him, so, Clive, um, what do you reckon? What, what's it's Christianity apart from all the rest? And he, and he said without thinking, oh, that's easy, it's grace. It's grace. Oh, that's easy. Uh, every other religion, the focus is on what you do to work your way up to God or Nirvana or whatever it is that we're, get, we're heading to. Now, the Christian gospel isn't about us working our way up to God. It is about God coming down to us in sheer free grace. So that's kind of the biggest contrast to this idea of grace alone. But there was one uh, contrast that Luther was really fighting against at the, same at the time he was at, and this is the contrast between grace alone and grace plus, or what I call grace plus. Uh, this idea of grace, God's grace, it wasn't new. It wasn't like Luther had talked about grace and no one else had ever talked about it before. It was through church history, and the Catholic Church at the time would have said, sure, we're saved by grace, but they saw it very differently. They had an idea of you, you, what they called cooperating with grace, cooperative grace. Uh, you, yeah, they had a little saying at the time, uh, you just do your best, basically, that was what <laughs> the saying was. You do, you do your best, you do your bit, and God will do his. Uh, you do what is in you, and then God will honour that, and you'll be saved. Uh, it still sees God as gracious, but at the end of the day, what you do is the decisive thing. And this drove Luther crazy, because he could never know whether he'd done enough. <laughs> he could never know whether he'd done enough. Now, there has to be, in this grace plus thinking, there has to be some little bit in us <laughs> that counts, <laughs> that, gets, that helps us to get there. Um, 
the third little uh, quickly alternative that uh, is really helpful to be aware of, and it came out in that same time, uh, it kind of rose up after the reformers. Um, it's a position that was taken by someone called Arminius. Uh, it, it said that, of what I've called initial grace, it said grace doesn't get us all the way. It kind of gets us into neutral, right? And then you, you are free to go with it or not. You can kind of decide whether to keep going or to go back. This was kind of this idea. We decide. Uh, what Luther saw in the scriptures uh, was that none of these positions really went far enough. They lead to lives of guilt and uncertainty, or perhaps worse, a lives of pride and arrogance. A life that's always looking in at yourself and what you're doing. The gospel of Jesus is grace all the way down to the bottom. Grace from start to finish. It's all from God and nothing from us. It has to be because of the reality of our sin. All those alternatives, at the end of the day, they severely underestimate the depth of our sin and our brokenness and our inability. They think of our problems as being more like sins, individual actions that kind of we have control over. But Luther saw in the Bible and through reading early theologians, people like St. Augustine, if you know about him, he saw through all of this that the problem isn't our sins, these individual actions we do, the problem is our sin. It's not, our, not, not firstly the actions we do, it's who we are. Uh, our actions flow out of our heart. Simply changing our actions can't change our heart. And there's no more striking place where you get this in Scripture than our passage today in Ephesians 2. Be really helpful if that's open. There'll be some come up on the screen as well. Uh, this shocking passage that Paul writes in Ephesians two, and we'll get to that. Um, but uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie The Princess Bride. Any Princess Bride lovers out there? Most of us will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's this great scene in The Princess Bride, uh, classic movie. Uh, Wesley has been tortured and he's in the pit of despair. You know, he's, he's been tortured. And Inigo and Physic, the swordsman and the giant, uh, they, they find him and uh, take him to old, you remember old Max the miracle worker, crazy Max? Uh, they think he's dead, but Max kind of looks at him, prods him a bit, um, puffs him up with air and listens to what he says and realises that he's only mostly dead. He's mostly dead. And he, then he gives him his magic miracle pill and wakes him up, right? Uh, if you know the, the movie, you'll know the scene. The view of grace that Ar Luther argued ab against was a little bit like that. We're kind of in a pretty bad way. Um, but there's still some life in us yet. And grace is like, you know, we're kind of mostly dead, but grace is like that little miracle pill that gets popped in that we, we swallow and... It gives us a boost, helps us out to then get up and get on with life. But the reality that the reformers saw in the scripture and that just comes out in our passage so clearly today is we're not just in a bad way. We're not even mostly dead. In spiritual terms, without Christ, we are dead all the way. We're completely dead. Ephesians 2 verse 1, as for you, you were dead 
in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Imagine you're, just imagine you're stuck down the bottom of a well. Okay, go with me here. Uh, some people think that grace is kind of like God standing at the top of the well and putting a ladder down to you, uh, for you to climb up out of it. But just imagine you're down the bottom of the well and you're the person in Ephesians 2 verse 1. Dead people can't climb ladders. What we need isn't a boost on our way, a spiritual pep talk. We don't even need someone to jump down and show us how to get out. What we need is a saviour. We need new life. Because we're dead all the way, we need grace all the way. And what the wonder of what Luther and the other reformers saw in the Bible is that in Jesus, that is exactly what God has given us. That is exactly what God has given us. Verse 4, Paul goes on after that kind of really, I mean, if you're reading it properly, offensive saying, what he writes at the start of that chapter, he goes on this incredible passage from verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. God didn't look down and see us, see which of us deserved his grace. He didn't look down and see which of us would be able to climb out. He didn't look down and see which tried the hardest, which of us did the best that we could, and then decide to give them his grace. Grace isn't God putting a ladder down for you. Grace is God, because of his great love and mercy, because of his sheer grace, jumping down into the well, picking up your dead self, tenderly carrying you out and breathing new life into you. That's grace. And he doesn't just bring us back to neutral so that we then kind of can decide whether to climb out or not. He's done it all for us. Paul goes on, this incredible reality of the fullness of what God has done in Jesus for us. From verse 6, not only has God made us alive with Christ, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The wonder of grace is that it is the sheer gift of God. Nothing we can do can earn it. He saves us purely out of his love and kindness, and it's all already been done. You notice that in that passage, God's made us alive with Christ. We not only have been saved in the past, we have this future reality, this new identity through being united with Christ. Uh, Luther puts it like this, 
This is the mystery of the riches of divine grace for sinners. For by a wonderful exchange, our sins are now not ours but Christ's, and Christ's righteousness is not Christ's but ours. If we've been united to Christ through faith, grace is stamped over us. (laughs) It's stamped over our past. It's stamped over our future. Uh, The incomparable riches of God's grace Uh, that will be revealed in the coming ages. Our whole life is lived under God's grace, not our own striving, not our own works. And Paul says that this is all so that no one can boast. Um, A few weeks ago, when we looked at God's glory alone, we saw that how the Reformation recovered a God-centred view of life, a God-centred view of life. God's glory is the goal. But we can be so hungry for a little bit of glory for ourselves, right? (laughs) Uh, We want something to boast about, something about ourselves to point to, to say, that's where my worth is, that's where my identity is. But the offensive and wonderful gospel of grace says that it's all from God, so that there's no room to boast. There's nothing to boast about for any of us. All of life is God's gift, not my achievement. Okay, well, one of the commonest objections to this idea of grace alone is that, uh, well, if it's all from grace, then it leaves you so that nothing that you do matters, right? You can just live in a way that, you know, whatever you can do whatever you do. If grace isn't dependent on what you do, then you just get on with sinning away with a clear conscience, right? Just do whatever you want. Uh, In our Romans series, we talked about that in Romans 6, and you can kind of look back over that if you like, but... Uh, basically, Paul goes on to say, look, if you're thinking like that way, you haven't tasted God's grace. <laughs> you really haven't tasted God's grace. God's grace gives you a, new, a whole new life, a whole new identity through trusting in Jesus. Um, in Ephesians, it's knowing God's grace that he has given us this new life. It, 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 Paul goes on in, in verse 10. He says, after all of this, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he has prepared in advance for us to do see what's going on there nothing we do contributes or earns God's grace to us but God's grace once it's poured out on our lives it overflows God's grace overflows our works never earn his grace but they flow out of it Uh, And in the rest of, really the best place to see what Paul means by that is just to keep reading Ephesians. The rest of Ephesians is this outline of what this life that flows out of grace looks like, especially from chapter 4 on where he says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. See what this is saying? We've received everything in Jesus. It's all of grace and it gives us this new identity. Okay, Uh, listen to Luther again, another great quote. It's so quotable. We're going to move on to some other reformers next week, but kind of two weeks in Luther is not a bad thing. Uh, I must hearken to the gospel. This is Luther kind of tying these things together uh, about the way in which grace, we don't move past grace ever. (laughs) Uh, And it's the thing that transforms us and gives us this new life. He says, I must hearken to the gospel which teacheth me, forgive the old language, which teacheth me not what I ought to do, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, hath done for me that he suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. The gospel willeth me to receive this and to believe it 
And this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, get this, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consisteth. Old language I know how to get your head around. See what he's saying? This gospel of grace is where the knowledge of godliness, real godliness, comes. It's grace that <laughs> trains you for godliness. Uh, and then he finishes off with this great ending. Most necessary is it, it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. <laughs> this is what we need to hear every day, over and over again. This is what will change our lives and give us these lives of good works for God's glory. Okay, well, grace shook the world 500 years ago. It liberated people from their bondage to religious performance, um, from the crushing burden of guilt that they were under, from their pride. Their lives suddenly were no longer driven by do, but done. What God has done. And it brought them into a new life of service that was alive and free, that wasn't driven by fear, but was an overflow of the grace that God had already poured into their lives. Friends, grace is just as radical today. It's just as offensive today. It's just as necessary today. Now, this is another quote. It's from the book that Steve waved around earlier from Michael Jensen. Uh, he talks about, it's a bit long, but hopefully it's helpful. Uh, he says, We have such a deeply ingrained doubt about grace that we have trouble hearing and understanding the message of God's free gift. We are so used to living in the world of what we might call ungrace. We hear the gospel of ungrace every day in sayings like, there's no such thing as a free lunch, money doesn't grow on trees, the world doesn't know you're living, there's no pain without gain. These are the principles of a world of ungrace. It's a world where you get what you deserve. It's a world in which you look with pride on your achievements and hide your failures in shame. It's a world in which you are constantly judged, marked, critiqued, fed back to and evaluated. It's a world in which you, can, you take any advantage you can because only the fittest or the smartest or the prettiest survive. That's the world of ungrace. What a contrast to the world of grace that is opened up to us through Christ. Now, there's nothing more urgent for us to, than to recover a delight in grace, to recover a sense of the amazingness of God's grace. I just want to suggest three things that flow out of the passage, really, about how we might recover amazing grace, not just something that each of us might sing along to or affirm as a doctrine, something that we believe in, but how we might be amazed by God's grace. And really, this is just coming out of Ephesians 2. The first place we need to start is to actually accept the offence of grace. Now, grace will never be amazing to you until you've seen the reality of your sin. Now, we become very good at hiding our sin. We become very good at defending ourselves, at, at performing uh, I think it's because without grace, if we don't have grace, to kind of lay open the deep selfishness of our hearts, the sickness within us, 
to do that without God's grace would be too much. It would crush us, right? So we kind of have to push it down. We have to ignore it. Sometimes, tragically, we can't ignore it anymore, and it does break us. Often grace isn't amazing to us because there is sin in our lives that we haven't yet dealt with, sin that we've kept in the dark. Grace is wonderful. Brothers and sisters, grace is wonderful because it finally means we can look inside ourselves and not hide away the darkness that we see there. We can have it exposed in the bright light of God's holiness. We can see its evil We can repent of it, acknowledge it. Not because we're trying to earn God's favour, but because we already have it. Because we already have it. God sees right into you. There is nothing hidden from him. And grace declares that he loves you, not because you are lovely, but because he is love. He sees you, he knows you, and he loves you. That's what grace says, and that's why grace gives us the freedom to accept the offence of, of our sin. And that is the wonder of grace. So friends, will you see it today? Um, it might be that you're a proud Christian person who talks about grace, but always manages to smuggle in something about yourself. Uh, Someone who is deeply uncomfortable at the thought of having nothing to bring except your sin and your neediness. You might think we start with grace and then maybe we move on from grace to something else, to the higher things, to our works. Your pride will leave you cold, it'll leave you judgmental, and it'll sap your wonder and your joy. Will you be humbled by God's grace today? You might be a proud Christian. On the other hand, you might be a broken Christian, plagued by uncertainty and doubts about God, about whether he'll accept you. Your fear will leave you broken and insecure, and God's grace is the wonderful and freely given balm for your soul. Receive this word as true, friends. His grace is bigger than your sin. His grace is bigger Many of us, though, may not have those extremes going on as much. We might just be a Christian who isn't amazed by grace, who's kind of just fall into a bit of apathy or lethargy. It's a big issue for people, people like me who've been brought up in Christian families and have never known a time outside of God's grace. You can very easily become cold or um, uh, apathetic to God's grace. All of us need grace every minute. None of us have passed it. Friends, though, just last, you may be for you, you're not a Christian today, but maybe, and what I mean by that is not necessarily not a churchgoer, but someone who hasn't yourself personally experienced God's grace in your life, the forgiveness of your sin. Maybe today that for the first time, God is taking the scales off your eyes, softening your hard heart towards him. Next week, we're going to think about how we receive this grace, this wonderful gift, by faith alone, by holding out empty hands to receive God's grace. Your only hope is not to work harder. Your only hope is to cast yourselves on God's grace 
and his mercy. And if by his grace you do that, he will lift you up and he will give you life. Friends, let's pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, um, Lord, we are so often cold to the wonder of the gospel. There's so often so many other things that crowded out. For those of us who are your people, we just need again and again by your grace to continually beat into our heads the gospel, the wonder of what it is you have done. Lord, we pray that today we might be humbled, we might be lifted up by your grace. Lord, give us the sure taste of the sweetness of what you have done in Jesus. For those of us who haven't tasted that, Lord, please soften our hearts to receive your what you have done for us in Christ by taking our place on the cross so that we might receive new life and forgiveness of sin and hope of eternal life with you. Lord, um, may your grace have its way among us and not only among us but through us to many people. May it overflow in lives of good works and lives of love and we pray that for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.